0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: When the New York Times hired Ross Douthat, just 30 years old at the time, as an op-ed columnist, many people raised eyebrows, but he's established himself uh, as one of the most provocative conservative uh, commentators in the country since that time. I sat down with him yesterday to talk about what Donald Trump means to conservatism and his own interesting path to the perch he now holds. Ross Stouthit, it is great to have you here at the University of Chicago and here on the podcast today. Um, I have to say, I must ask you to to start with your great grandfather, uh, Bill Snow. Yes, tell me
2: tell me I, about this. Hardly, I think this I've be I've hardly ever surprising... been asked about about him. So my yes, my my great grandfather was a. Um, a, he was born uh, on an island off the coast of Maine, um, and grew up to be a poet politician, which is not not a genre. <laughs> well, there's or a hovel, species. I guess. Right, but... <laughs> right. He was the hovel of Connecticut in the 1940s, um, but he was sort of a. You know, I don't want to underrate him, but he, he was, I would say, a poet in the tier below Robert Frost. But perhaps. he hung
1: with him; he knew he him. He hung right? with
2: him; they were they were friends. Uh, my grandfather, his son, passed away recently, and we have several books um, in his. It's too grand to call it an estate, but in his possessions that are inscribed by Frost, one has a poem written by him in it, um, and there were others, so, Carl Sandburg. Or, yep, there was a whole know. group yeah. of, um, of of of. Of sort of poets and writers who he was friends with, and he sort of moved back and forth between a life on the coast of Maine where he grew up, and then a life in Middletown, Connecticut, where he taught at Wesleyan for a long time. And he was extremely briefly the governor of Connecticut, like eight days like or eight tw- days. So he was like, yeah. he was he was the lieutenant governor, um, and he ran. Uh, He ran for governor himself and lost, I believe. But we should
1: note note that he dispatched two very prominent Democrats— chester bowles and tom dodd who both went on to great things uh, he did
2: and there was there was even i think in the, a primary, sort of dewey in the dewey defeats, convention i there guess there was a was. sort of dewey defeats truman kind of thing i think where a local newspaper said something like oh we've sent the academic packing yes. back to the groves of academe but in fact he had they were premature and he had he had grabbed the nomination but then he lost Um, but he was still the lieutenant governor and the governor I'm forgetting who it was his name was Baldwin see this is this is very impressive but he resigned and so my Wilbert Snow was governor of Connecticut for eight days and every time we're living in Connecticut now and every time we drive through Hartford, I will point out to my six-year-old and my four-year-old and my 18-month-old, the Capitol Dome, and I'll say, for eight days, our family ruled all of Connecticut. And really
1: kind of shaped the future of Connecticut, probably. It did. It, was, those, it did.
2: They called them eight days that shook the world.
1: <laughs> so uh, my read of it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if you were to <clears throat> translate him into the modern context, he would have been sort of a Bernie Sanders type character. Is that fair?
2: I think that's fair. He was he was pretty liberal, um, but he was also sort of a species that doesn't, you know, it, I mean, it's a political species that doesn't exist anymore. This this sort of old stock, New England um, kind of romantic intellectual politician. I mean, you know, Sanders is a variation on it, but there's Not, yeah. the, wor- the yeah. world has changed, yeah. I think, and it's hard to say. I mean, he was you know, he he was a transcendentalist. I would say in sort of his religious views, he had some kind of Protestant upbringing, and his family had lots of ministers in the family tree. But it was, it was very much a sort of he was an he was a New Englander in a way that you know that New England culture it still exists here and there, but it's been sort of you know ground down by the, wheel, <laughs> the wheels of But he
1: was sort of a citizen politician who saw yep. politics as a way of 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 doing good. Of, yes. Of, yeah. And
2: as, yeah and, and who saw a connection between, you know, teaching at Wesleyan and serving in government um, and between his life between that and his life as sort of you know, a romantic fisherman on the coast of Maine because in the end his a large chunk of my this is my mother's side of the family ended up back there, and so I have, you know, our our family ended up sort of taking his legacy in all kinds of different directions. I have an aunt who works for the UN, and I have an uncle who's a lobster fisherman, uh-huh. and they're all sort of pieces of his distinctive combination.
1: And and uh, one thing that was passed down was this. Uh, at least for some time, so th- this liberalism. I get the sense that your your mother. You, I read somewhere that your first political memory was your your mom uh, going to vote going for Walter
2: Mondale and, and, and Ger- Geraldine Fer- Ferraro. Ferraro, and that yes. was the main thing. She wanted to make sure that you know we had we got the first female vice president, which sadly not enough Americans agreed with her about that. But, but yeah, I, I grew up with parents. My dad was from Southern California. My mom from. Maine, and they were both sort of, I was born in San Francisco, my parents met in Berkeley in the late 70s. Um, And we, all my early political memories were of um, being, you know, was Mondale, we were against Reagan, we sat there on election night in 1992 with, you know, a puzzle of the US with every state was a piece and you'd put in the states as Clinton won them. And uh, and you know we we were for Clinton all the way and then
1: you went all Alex Keaton on that.
2: I did well you have to rebel a little <laughs> bit and we we had become um, we'd always been fairly religious but we'd become much more religious uh over the course of my yeah, childhood Yeah tell
1: tell me about that because that's another interesting story I mean you your your family Sort of jointly went on a kind of we went on re- a religious a
2: magical mystery tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We so we we were Episcopalian originally, uh, and which is a fine sort of again old stock New England mm-hmm. kind of thing to be. And my mother had various health problems um, that she sort of struggled to find. Treatment for, and she had a lot of allergies and chemical sensitivities, and a lot of things that sort of now, you know, if you go to the supermarket aisle now, every detergent brand, it'll say free of perfumes and dyes. There'll be a brand, you know, there, there's sort of a whole marketing apparatus dedicated to people with some of these issues, but there was nothing like that in the 1980s. There were just a few weird health food stores and, you know, strange fad diets. And so we had, we spent a lot of time with. That kind of stuff, you know, I ate in health food restaurants and wandered in the New Age bookstores that were inevitably attached to them. Um, But then she also had a friend who said you should come to this healing service that this woman puts on, who had had a near-death experience herself, I think, and come back from it with some kind of...
1: Pentecostalism or something?
2: Well, it was effectively Pentecostalist, but we didn't know, you know, uh, that's just a label that you sort of slap on things <laughs> after the fact. It was just this woman, and mm-hmm. she. I think she was probably raised Catholic, she was Italian, and she'd had this experience, and she'd started a ministry, and you went in, and um, people played guitar, and she sang and preached, and, um, and then she went around and did, you know, the thing you see in movies where somebody says, somebody in this aisle has this problem in their leg, somebody here is struggling with this, and people would stand up, and she would pray over them, and they would fall down. And, you know, my mother was in the first class of women at Yale, and was, you know, the 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 granddaughter of a distinguished, <laughs> brief governor and of a writer in a, and a and writer, of her writer, and writer in writer. her own right, yeah. and, you know, wanted to be a novelist at that point, and she was religious, but, you know, this was not for her or so she thought but then you know she was called out into the aisle and prayed over and she went down and had a dramatic were you there i wasn't no i wasn't there for that but i was there for plenty of things thereafter so i had a childhood where you know during the week i went to private schools in the new haven area that were nice and liberal and secular and on the weekends your dad did well your dad was a lawyer he was a personal injury lawyer Mm -hmm. in, in new haven yeah um and um which gave him a strong tie to the Democratic Party and uh-huh. and Something's yeah and then on the weekends changed. and then on the weekends I would go and watch my parents speak in tongues. Uh and so we had this sort of
1: And what was the I mean I uh, you said your your uh your mother was drawn to this in part by looking for answers uh to some of these medical issues that she had. Um, but obviously there was a religiosity oh, yeah, uh, to your family before that. And what is it uh, beyond that that uh, attracted your, your folks? And, and what were, how did you process all of that?
2: Well, I, so I'm not a mystical personality. I'm really interested in mysticism and religious experience intellectually, in part because I sort of watched it, Unfold and watched it redirect my family, and I mean, ultimately my my own life as well. Um, but when I was prayed for, I didn't fall down, and and we went to some you know we went to some strange, intense places. We went, we drove all the way to Toronto when there was um, this kind of move of the Holy Spirit at this little vineyard church near the airport in Toronto and it was it was like revivalism on steroids it was people roaring like lions and running around the room and doing all kinds of totally crazy stuff and i was probably like 13 and i just sort of hovered in the background and and observed and i didn't uh, you know i've I, I mean i've had a few experiences in my life that maybe were sort of borderline mystical but in a very generic sort of way i've never had that kind of intense experience that both my parents but especially my I think my my mother had. So I re- I've always related to religion much more intellectually. And so we ended up as Catholics I think in part because my mother was looking for a place that could sort of unite her mystical experiences with a kind of intellectual structure. And Catholicism has its own strong mystical tradition that's very different from Pentecostalism, but also compatible with it in certain ways. So that was for her. For me, there was more of a sort of awkward adolescence relief in getting to somewhere where people didn't, you know, put their hands on you and ask you to testify how Jesus had changed your life. And the sort of, the traditions of Catholicism were they, they were sort of laid out for, for you. Me. Yeah, it was, you had prayers, and you memorized the prayers. And if you committed serious sins, you went to confession. And, you know, we had there was a system for all of this, and it was less dependent on individual charisma, I guess. You know, I,
1: I've I've confessed many times that I am uh, I was not the most rigorous student when I was here at the University of Chicago <laughs> 45 years ago or something, and I was eager to get on with my career as a newspaper man. And, but uh, one of the books that uh, intrigued me, and then— sadly it became more relevant to me uh, was a book by Emil durkheim uh, called suicide yep. in which he talked about uh, the suicide rates among various religious groups and and it was low among uh, Catholics and you know his 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 theory basically was that because of the structure that Catholicism provided that you're sort of speaking to um there was a ballast for people that uh, and perhaps there was some uh, there was greater disincentive but there was some structural ballast for them to keep them from uh from uh from committing suicide but um that that structure uh was something that I always that always interested me and-
2: right and it's it's multiple structures at once i mean there's you know, there's sort of the threat that, especially in those days, less so now, you had where, you know, if you were a suicide, you wouldn't be buried in consecrated ground, and there would be sort of shame brought on your family. Um, And that's receded to some extent in some cases for good reason, you know. But, uh, my, but, fa- but my, then, my father
1: committed suicide, and this is why. And then while I was in college, and oh. he we, we were Jewish, and there were still there was there were strictures about that that yeah. were not observed at that point. But um, you know, so it's not unusual for religions to look askance at right. uh, at suicide. So it was more than that,
2: right? It was also, I mean, there was well, I mean, I, I don't I don't know if Durkheim was right completely over the yeah, sort of right. arc arc of history and so on. And I think there's I think Jewish communities can probably provide some similar yeah, yeah, structures yeah, yeah. to yeah. what he's describing. But no but no, I mean Catholicism, you know, I mean ultimately you're trying to live you know, you're trying to live your life as if it is embedded in a world picture that makes sense, right? And one and and that can be something that, you know, is there to sort of provide happiness and moral guidance in the everyday, but it's also something that's becomes particularly important in crisis. And, you know, in my own, in my own life experiences, when you, know, when you hit a crisis, when you have a tragedy happen, when you have an illness happen, when you have sort of these moments of feeling like you, know, you can't go on, it's not that religion is there to sort of say, oh, don't worry, it's going to get better, you know, because God loves you and he'll make you happy. I, I don't see that promise anywhere necessarily in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Um, it's more that it gives you sort of the confidence that even if it doesn't get better, it's worth doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that to me is sort of the, you know, in my, again, l- limited experience with suffering, that that is the thing that sort of having religious belief has sort of offered to me, the sense that, you know, no, this might not get better. In fact, it might get worse. It could get much worse. You could end up, you know— Crucified, like God crucified His own Seems son. Like a worst case it's scenario. A worst, there. worst case, worst case <laughs> scenario. But even if it does get worse, it's worth going through it because you're inhabiting a story. This is a test of some kind. You don't understand the test, but you want to keep. You want to try and pass it. And the more, you know, the more divorced you are from that. Those kind of assumptions about the universe. The more. You know, I I don't know. I mean, I think you see this in trends in Western Europe where, you know, euthanasia becomes legalized and then it becomes something that isn't just sort of for the terminally ill, but it's something in the Netherlands and the low countries generally that's sort of a natural thing to offer to, you know, the depressed 65 year old who has no children and is alone. And is their life definitely going to get better if they stay alive, no, it's not definitely going to get better. So if you're operating purely on a sort of imminent time horizon where, you know, the next 10 or 20 or 30 years of your life is all you have left and that looks miserable, then there there is a real logic to so euthanasia. I'll, I would assume that you're
1: I, – I mean, I, I can almost certainly assume that that would extend your belief – Set would extend to uh, assisted suicide for people who are terminally ill.
2: Yes, um, I, I, I think there isn't anything. I mean, we're all terminally ill, right? Uh, I, I don't. I think that the the logic of allowing suicide for the terminally ill is not a self limiting logic, um, and that doesn't mean that uh, you know doesn't mean that in sort of the the difficult cases where it's a question of, you know, what defines withholding treatment and, you know, what, I mean, I think there are legitimate debates about what counts as ending care and what counts as assisted suicide. And the line between those two is always going to be blurry. And there are always going to be situations in which doctors are making choices that sort of walk along that line. Um, but once you once you say that the literal act of suicide is something that is going to be legal and potentially desirable and carried out under sort of medical authorization i think you're the the idea that we can you would only confine this to the terminally ill doesn't actually ultimately make logical sense because the suffering of someone who isn't terminally ill but is trapped with an illness with depression with mental illness with just sort of terrible, terrible grief caused by the death of a loved one, that suffering might be worse. Someone who has two months to live might be facing less suffering <laughs> over that two-month span than someone who's yeah, 57. Yeah, it's a tough one for
1: me. because My, uh, my mother lived to quite a, an old age, 93, but she had, uh, she had congestive heart failure, and by the end, she was, her quality of life was terrible. And she kept asking for people to help her die and right. they and and of course everyone said no we can't do that and uh and finally someone in, at the hospice who she hooked up with said but you know you you take heart medicine if you were to stop taking that medicine right. which is totally up to you you'd probably die in 4 days and she said sign me up and I went and spent those 4 days with her and she was uh, so sanguine and so happy and we actually had the, some of the greatest quality right. conversations that we had ever had and she felt like she had lived a, li- her, a full life and her quality of life was was, was bad and she was going to die soon. But she just didn't want to subject herself to that anymore and I was very sympathetic to that. I thought
2: yeah. it was sort of heroic. Yeah, and I think that there is, again – there are always going to be these gray areas. But I think there's a distinction between ceasing to do things above and beyond the normal mm-hmm. and actually going ahead and saying, I'm, you know, directly ending my life. Um, and that, again, get there you get into sort of. Philosophical waters and sort of you know places where Catholic theologians like to like to argue.
1: Yeah, speaking of Catholic theologians, you you are quite a provocateur uh, within the Catholic world. And, Surely not, and um, uh, and you have you've been uh, fairly critical of the Pope. Yes, and uh, uh, and also of Cardinal Supich who was a guest on on uh, this podcast uh, a few. Uh, weeks ago, and he said something that I suspect would be provocative to you. Yeah, uh, which is uh, he said that you know there are two views of uh, of uh, uh, of faith, and uh, and one is a. Um, uh, and spirituality, and he said, one is uh, where you infantilize people and tell them what to do, yes, and the other uh, is where uh, you uh, where you appeal to people's consciences, and they answer to their consciences, uh, and that's a more adult kind of spirituality, and he's that's the kind of spirituality that he believes the Pope is yes. uh, speaking of. Y- you would take exception with with that.
2: I would—yes, I I would, um, somewhat. I I don't think that the—I don't think he's wrong, per se, to critique a theology or a mode of church life that just sort of, you know, in the old cliché, expects people to pray, pay, and obey, right? I I mean, I think the reality is that religious institutions can err in all kinds of directions, and there have certainly been times in the Catholic Church's history where— you know, the sort of idea that, you know, you're just expecting obedience without explanation um, and you're sort of relying on authority rather than argument. That's that's obviously a danger and a temptation and a problem for the church. At the same time, you know, the sort of the language of adult spirituality um, can I mean, it can be unchristian in certain ways in the sense that, uh, you know, I mean, if you read the New Testament, Jesus doesn't say you must become as a sophisticated adult in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says you must become as a little child. And there has to be some emphasis on um, the sort of childlike reception of truth um, in Christianity or else it just becomes a kind of bourgeois religion. Uh, where you know it's sort of it's sort of there to provide some form of you know some form of general moral guidance and some form of you know sort of so- social act- activism and something to do on Sunday morning and so on, but it isn't um, it isn't something that really challenges you to change your life and the the danger of saying well we we want Catholics to just be adults and to sort of have well-formed consciences and trust their own conscience is is that well I suppose the idea and I'm look I'm an interloper
1: in this discussion but uh, I suppose the idea is that you what you do is you provide people with a moral construct and within that moral construct then they 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 make uh they make judgments uh and what faith and 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 spirituality can do is provide that moral construct. yes.
2: And I think that that's true. But you want that moral construct to be challenging to people, um because otherwise, the tendency of the human mind and the human heart is to find reasons, to find religious reasons to do what you were already going to do anyway. Um And you know, the position of the church, circa 1875 is very different from the position of the church circa 2017. And I feel like what a lot of um, what a lot of Catholics with the views of the Cardinal, or perhaps the views of the Pope, certainly the views of some people in this inner circle, they always think of the Church as being where it was before Vatican II, where the, you have these sort of ethnic communities with these dominant archbishops, these dominant prelates who are telling people, you know, that Cardinal of Philadelphia told people not to go to the movies in the 1940s, and they didn't for a year to sort of, you know, that... that they miss, they miss some good flicks. They miss some good flicks, but yeah. that's not the Church as it exists today. Church... As it exists today, is an institution that is in deep tension with a much more secularized and permissive society, uh, and it's a it's an institution that's pretty much one of pretty much the only institution in the West that offers some kind of extended critique of the sexual revolution and offers it joined to a critique. And here I tend to be more sympathetic to the Pope, a critique of consumerism and sort of the excesses of capitalism and so on. It's trying to offer a kind of unified critique of the way Western man lives now. And if you, uh, what I see too much from the Vatican now is a kind of retreat from that critique and a sense of saying, well, you know, everybody, we can trust Catholics to be sophisticated adults about you know the the big flashpoint of this pontificate has been divorce and remarriage, and the idea being that, you know, the the view, and I think this is the view um, of the Archbishop of Chicago, that uh, you know the church is is simply too hard on divorced and remarried Catholics, and that uh, you know that that there just there needs to you effectively just need to take all of these. Situations, case by case by case, and you don't want to proclaim too harshly any kind of sort of universal one size fits all rule. And I I don't see that mentality in the New Testament when I read, you know, what Jesus actually. Well, well what
1: you do see is that there that there was a very high divorce rate before this Pope came along. Yes. So um, the 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 other approach didn't necessarily limit people's. Um, decisions as to whether to be married or not.
2: Well, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't. Uh, Catholics, you know, whatever else you might say about us, do have lower divorce rates than every other religious tradition in the U.S. Catholic countries still have lower divorce rates than other countries, and religious observance in Catholicism tends to correlate with marital stability. Um, So... You could argue it both ways, as is often the case. You could say, well, you know, people are going to do this anyway, and you need to meet them where you are. But you could also say the church, again, is the last institution that will, you know, will say to the children of divorce that your parents' marriage was real and valuable and shouldn't have broken up. And people who are—I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a child and grandchild of divorce in different ways, so I do have some personal experience with this. It's not just— the the parties in the marriage, parties who go through the divorce and remarry and so on, who are affected by what the Church says about divorce. It's also the children of that family. It's also people struggling to keep their marriages together. And I just think it's too simple to say, well, the Church should be, you know, it should sort of imagine a kind of sophistication from yeah. from its parishioners instead of forthrightly challenging them in cases where, sort of late modern American life and what the New Testament has to say really are intention. Yeah. They are and you it's, can't escape from that.
1: You know, I um I'm also the child of divorce and it Granting uh, what you say about children being impacted by divorce, they're also impacted by bad marriages and yes. angry relationships and so on. I have to—this uh, this is literally going from the sacred to the profane, but Let's I do have do to it. take a, a short break here, and we'll be right back uh, with uh, Ross Douthat. So you go to Harvard. You go to Harvard— and you take these views that you've just expressed here, and, a, and a, 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 a con, both, uh, both a general conservatism and a social conservatism uh, to Harvard. I read a, a profile uh, about you there, and it said that he was uh, strongly anti-abortion and said that, quote, premarital chastity is something that as a Catholic and as a Christian I aspire to. Um, you must have stood out on campus there. I won't ask you whether you how well you lived up to I your mean, aspirations. I didn't, I didn't
2: because I, I, you know, I I wasn't. I don't have. I I have the ideas, but not necessarily the temperament of <laughs> of a zealous of a zealously religious person. So if you just judged my Harvard life by reading the columns I wrote for the Crimson and you know, the stuff I published as the editor of the conservative paper, you would have said, yeah, this guy was, you know, this guy must've been like the conservative weirdo on campus or something. But in my actual everyday life, you know, my roommates who I sort of was friends with all four years were mostly secular and, you know, pagan in the way of college students and, um and the life the lifestyle i led was sort of somewhere in between i would say i'm relieved to hear that right well i mean you know i was not (laughs) i was not like the most debauched college student in history but i i wasn't you know i had a friend who said who said about our group this was freshman year but he was like you know well we're virgins by choice the choice of the women of america
1: (laughs) you uh you 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 we writing at Harvard, as you mentioned you you come from a family of writers. Did you always know that you were going to write?
2: Probably yeah I, I think you know I, I had the brief period where I imagined myself getting elected president, as you know every every kid who 's interested in politics does but that that fever passed <laughs> very mm-hmm. quickly I, I think the main the main surprise has been that i when I was a teenager, I imagined myself um, probably writing a lot more fiction and writing less about the news and current events. And um, that was just something that I sort of, you know, you sort of make one choice and then another choice and the next thing you know, well, you're living choices, in D.C. You spent a
1: couple of summers working for the National Review yep. as an intern, and William Buckley was still around he at the He was still time. around, yes. And did you have interactions with him
2: while you were there? I I'd had a couple. He would he would invite the interns to lunch once, um, and, and then... He had a tradition of, I think it was a tradition of inviting us to go sailing with him for a night on his boat in the Long Island Sound. So, so we did that. Yeah, uh, I read something about, about that. Yeah, there was some. How did that there, end up? There, you know, there was a lot of drinking and uh, there was some skinny dipping. So it was about it was about what you would imagine from a, from a boat trip with William F. Buckley. <laughs> he wrote a book
1: that really put him on the map called "God and God and Man at, at Yale," based on his experience at Yale. He, he wrote that book when he was twenty six years old. After Harvard, you went to work for the Atlantic. Yep. And when you were 26, you wrote a book called "Privilege: Harvard and the Education of the Ruling Class." Were you inspired by? Oh, sure. Buckley? Where, yeah, did yeah, yeah. did, did you take? Uh,
2: but his book sold rather rather yes. better than it mine. Was a, it was a classic. It was a classic, and and mine mine was not. But I, I was I had the idea that. Um, I I thought that his book, his book was very focused on sort of high level controversies about the nature of the university. Uh, And I was trying to write a book that would be sort of 50% that and 50% a portrait of um, regular campus life because I felt like there hadn't been such a portrait. Uh, and then, of course, my book ended up coming out like three months after Tom Wolfe's I Am Charlotte Simmons came out. And so that was, you know, everybody wanted to talk about Tom Wolfe's portrait of life at Duke for some reason instead of my very powerful <laughs> portrait of life at Harvard. Well, timing's everything. Timing you know. timing is everything. And, uh, and, but yeah, so it was a more, it was trying to be a sort of personal sociology. And I think it's, it's, um, you know, I would describe it as an, yeah, an uneasy mix of memoir and polemic if I were reviewing myself now.
1: You were recruited uh, out of Harvard by David Bradley, who owned the Atlantic. Yep. And um, he came and he interviewed a bunch of you from the Harvard Crimson. Uh, How did that all come about? And did you know this is what I want to want to do?
2: Well, I mean, I was a little desperate. I'd I'd interned for National Review and done some sort of conservative media stuff. And uh, I'd sent out my resume and either because it was right after 9-11 and nobody was hiring or my resume and clips weren't actually as impressive as I thought. Nobody offered me a job. So it was, you know, May and all, you know, I, I had not really applied for graduate school or anything. And suddenly the owner of the Atlantic sort of descended on... Cambridge and called up the someone at the Crimson and said, I want to interview people. And I wasn't even technically on the Crimson. I was just their token conservative columnist. Um and but I had a friend who got me in for one of these interviews and I was hired. And at that point it was sort of Was it because you were a conservative? I don't think so. I, I mean I think I think David you know, he I think he liked the idea of hiring a conservative among the people he was hiring, so it was probably Helpful, but it wasn't. I don't think it was quite that straightforward. It wasn't sort of the kind of pure affirmative action that got me a calm at the New York <laughs> Times. Um, but he, but I know I was very excited at that point because the Atlantic, Michael Kelly was the editor then. Um, it was sort of at a peak moment, especially after nine eleven, uh, and so I felt like this was a dream job. And then, of course, in fact. The magazine was still based in Boston, and this group of people who had been hired were all in D.C. working for David sort of directly, but without much contact at all with the magazine. So there was sort of a, you know, as always with your first job, you have sort of the idea of what you'll be doing, which in my case meant sitting down with Michael Kelly and hashing out what should be in the next issue of The Atlantic. And instead, I was with the owner of the magazine who was sort of going through his own Tangled sort of, you know, as owners of magazines do, process of trying to figure out how do you make this profitable, how do you work with mm-hmm. the existing team, and then Michael Kelly was killed in Iraq, and right. so I was sort of there as a very young person at a time of great turbulence for the magazine, and of course you only think about yourself in such moments, and sort of how how you know how will this advance my career, but um, but yeah, that was how I started out, and that was the point when I was writing the Harvard book because i felt like well i don't know anything about foreign policy is radical islam the war in iraq but at least i know something about ivy league education so i'll write i'll write that
1: you you wrote another book you co-authored another book in 2008 with rehan salam who was by the way a, uh, a iop uh, an iop yes, fellow an, an excellent choice interested. he was he was outstanding
2: i believe it and
1: um he was your roommate at 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 uh, or at Harvard is not, not a-
2: actually oddly we barely knew each other at Harvard. He mostly did theater, um, and I met him once at an Institute of Politics event there. But we only met really in D.C. when he was he was sort of a serial assistant. He was Max Boot's assistant, and then Andrew Sullivan's assistant, mm-hmm. and then David Brooks's assistant. And we sort of teamed up um, to write about domestic policy, and we the stuff we did together it was sort of the you know through the looking-glass version of Donald Trump's 2016 campaign. Well, that's the interesting thing about it. It
1: was very predictive of what was going on, in in the sense that you you did a great deal of analysis about what was happening to the sort of white working-class voter in the country. And um, Trump, uh, in his own way, um, reacted to... Those, talk a little bit about what you saw back in 2008 and how it played out in 2016.
2: Yeah, I mean, what we saw was the Republican Party becoming more of a working class party. Um, and at the same time, sort of running out of ideas that actually fit those voters' economic interests. Um, so our argument was that a lot of what... Um, Reagan and even even George W. Bush did was not just a kind of politics of plutocracy, that there was a kind of Republican middle class agenda that did fit together with stuff done for the upper class, but was sort of made sense in its own right, Uh, but that that had all sort of Either been enacted or the underlying trends had changed, uh, the issue mix had changed, and the party circuit 2005-2006 just didn't have much to say to those voters, even as they were becoming an increasingly important part of the coalition, and even as they were dealing with wage stagnation, deindustrialization, family breakdown, a lot of these trends. So in that sense, I think we anticipated a both sort of hmm the specific demographic and the mix of sort of social and economic concerns that Trump capitalized on in 2016. um, I think, you know, we were what we were trying to imagine was a kind of pan ethnic conservative populism, as opposed to the kind of white identity politics that Trump has trafficked in. Um, And obviously, I think as President, his, you know, he's sort of basically jettisoned all of that populism and just governed on a very standard issue, sort of zombie Reaganite. Well, that's an
1: interesting thing because um, when you look at the, the, the his sort of program, it is it is very much in line with kind of the uh, more corporate, yep, sort of special interest. Washington establishment. Yes. Uh, why?
2: Because he doesn't care. I think, um, and because he, you know he has his own biases. Whatever he did or said on the campaign trail, you know he's a rich businessman who likes the idea of corporate tax cuts. So, so there is some sort of authentic Trump personal belief behind some of the things Republicans have done. But you know, on healthcare, Trump doesn't care about healthcare. Trump, I'm sure, was perfectly sincere when he. Seemed to endorse single payer in the past. And, you know, you have stories coming out of the White House saying of him saying, well, why can't we just put everybody in Medicare? And then Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell will explain that, you know, you can't do that and so on. Um, so I, I just think he I think on a few issues, he has sort of normal Republican um sort of rich person instincts. And then on a bunch of other issues, he just doesn't he doesn't have the energy or the interest. He's not a policy person. He sort of intuitively tapped into these ideas on the campaign trail, but placed in Washington, with a Republican Party run by McConnell and Ryan, he's just not interested in doing anything about that. And trade is a slight exception. I think he does. He's
1: been talking, about it, for he's been talking years. about it
2: for 30 years. He does have consistently sort of protectionist views, but even there so far his inability to sort of do the normal work of being the president <laughs> has made it hard for him to sort of get past the you know, I mean joking about the deep state aside, there is in fact a sort of, you know, permanent class in Washington that you know each party has its own version thereof and the republican version sort of filled in his administration because he didn't have anyone else to fill it and the only person in his administration who was actually a populist in sort of a thoroughgoing way was steve bannon who didn't oh, also didn't know what he was doing and sort of came in and tried to run 17 things at once and take over the national security council and run immigration policy and all these things and ended up of course pissing everyone off pissing off Trump who didn't want to share credit and now he's gone and with Bannon gone you know it's just Trump alone with very bog standard republicans yep so republicans. he's so he's doing you know he can't, there are limits on what they can do because on health care especially their agenda is very unpopular but you know it turns out they can still do tax cuts so
1: they can and and he can still do deregulation at a prodigious clip yes yes he can still appoint conservative judges
2: Yes, he can do – I mean, in so far, the consistent ideological conservatives who bet on him have done better than the populists who bet on him, the sort of heterodox conservatives. And he's been a very – he's been a fairly ineffective in legislatively but somewhat successful otherwise standard-issue Republican president.
1: We're going to take another short break, and we'll be right back. You work at the New York Times. I do. Uh, the New York Times has not uh, gained much favor with this president. Uh, in a at- sense.
2: He's been very good to us in certain ways. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. Well, what do you make of that?
1: That uh, he rails against the Times, says it's a failing newspaper, and it engages in fake
2: news. He, he loves the Times. He's the, he he To him, the New York Times— is the embodiment of his love hate relationship with Manhattan, the New York elite, everything else. So I, I shouldn't say he loves the Times. He doesn't love the Times, but he has he has a love hate relationship with the Times where he will always come back to Times reporters for interviews, as you've seen happen again and again. And you know, and then and that also translates into the weird phenomenon where he you know he writes tweets attacking us and threatening the press and so on. And people wring their hands about the threats to press freedom in America. And meanwhile, our subscription rates skyrocket. And, you know, the media the, the media that is supposedly threatened by Trump has been done an immense commercial favor by him, which I, he also knows because he talks about that, too.
1: Oh, yes. I have, um, you know, I, I have some very deep policy concerns about... His decisions, Um, but I've said before: you know, you lose an election; a party loses an election. The other party makes policy. That's the nature of democracy. The other nature of the other, but but what is is uh, consistently necessary for democracy is functioning institutions. And uh, Senator Flake made a speech. Today, as we sit here, about uh, the president's uh, particularly focusing on his war on the media, yep. news media, but also other institutions. How concerned are you about that? About just this, uh, or do you feel these institutions need to be challenged?
2: I'm less concerned than some Trump critics, um, mostly because I, I think he himself is not an agent. He's not the primary agent of whatever problem we have. I think that he tapped into a pre-existing disillusionment with these institutions. He rose to power because of institutional failures um, by the media, but sort of elite governance more generally um, in both parties, but particularly the Republican Party that deserved to be challenged and needed to be addressed. And then in office, again, because of his weakness and his lack of interest in sort of getting his hands around the gears of government, he's not using the powers of the presidency in the way that I sometimes feared he would and that some of his sort of strongest, small-R Republican critics have feared he would. Like, the press is fine. There's never been a moment recently in certain ways with a more freewheeling press because the conservative media is so divided against itself, and, uh, you know, the—I mean, there's—the problems in the, the American media right now all have to do with, you know, mid-sized daily newspapers mm-hmm. continuing to shed jobs. Trump doesn't have anything to do with that, except insofar as sort of there's this pre-existing problem of celebrity culture that's devouring our media. So I don't see him as a huge threat to the freedom of the press. I don't... How about the
1: rule of law and uh, the primacy of law over men,
2: I mean, including they, the president. Well, there, you know, I, I, Trump is—he is—he is more personally corrupt uh, in the presidency than I think. This—that this is a legitimate concern and critique that you know the people paying for memberships at Mar-a-Lago are buying influence, and people dip foreign diplomats stay in his hotels and so on. That's all gross and seedy and a problem. Um you know, at the, me- but at the same time, the institution themselves. When he tries to do things, I mean. It, He keeps getting balked. He can't pass legislation except for a tax cut, which any Republican president could pass. He, you know, his his travel bans and other things keep getting swatted down by the courts. Often, in what I see, as sort of overreach from the courts themselves. But it, it seems to me, you know, the bureaucracy is foiling his political appointees in various ways. He seems just very constrained to me. And again, there are, there are clearly deep institutional problems, but they're all problems that predate him, and he's making them worse in certain ways, but he's not this figure of—you know, my f- my friend David Frum has a new book out called Trumpocracy that I think— that David
1: was. has some strong feelings And he has strong—and
2: he, he and I differ on this, I think. I'm going to write about it—I'm um, not sure when this podcast will run, but I, I may have already written about it when— <laughs> <laughs> when, it, it was go, an when it goes, column, long, I said, thank you. It was it brilliant, early. but yes. but I'm I'm trying to set up a dialogue with him about it because to me the idea of like many of the critiques he lodges in his book are correct, but at the same time the frame of sort of tr- the title is Trumpocracy and the, the idea that sort of we're being Ruled in some sense by this figure, the way you know Erdogan has consolidated power in Turkey, you know, or the way other strongmen have consolidated power around the world. I just don't see Trump consolidating
1: because s- the institutions are strong. Because the institutions to be are strong, and
2: he is personally weak, and he's dependent on existing Republican ideas and personnel, and he's not interested. He wants to be a tyrant on Twitter. He doesn't want to be a tyrant you know, he'll say, oh, we got to look at the libel laws. Is he going to do anything to change the libel laws? Yeah, I'll tell
1: you um, a story that I thought was maybe most reflective of his sort of philosophy, not just in government, but in life, was when this Native American tribe came in and uh, complained that they wanted to drill on their land and there were environmental strictures against it and he said reportedly i think your paper reported it so we're going to assume, assume that it's, it's true fake news <laughs> and he said uh and he said well go ahead and do it who's going to stop you i'm president now and there is this side of trump that's sort of like rules norms oh yeah none of those are are to be observed and you should get away with whatever you can get
2: away with yes i think that's correct um, but then, and I have not followed this particular case, but when it comes down to it, if you sort of tell people to do things, they will still run into bureaucratic and legal processes. Yeah, and we should. And be Trump ha- is not equipped, you know, like, I mean, I just think we've lived through periods in this country of real imperial presidents. And maybe, you know, maybe Trump will get to that point. Maybe we'll have, you know, a terrorist attack. And the economy will still be booming and he'll suddenly become more popular and he'll start doing, you know, having the wherewithal to do dramatic things. But, you know, compared to FDR, compared to Nixon, compared to Bush, compared to, you know, to your boss, in terms of sort of actual acts, like ju- just something like, like you know, f- foreign entanglements, right? I mean, again, we're only a year in, it could change. But there isn't even the equi- an equivalent of... The Libya intervention that President Obama did, let alone the stuff that Bush did, let alone the, you know, if you want to talk about norms, the sort of norm breaking and so on around the war on terror was much more striking in the aftermath of 9-11 than anything Trump has done. It just seems to me that sort of American— the. Big threats to America come in when you have very strong presidents who lead us into large or small disasters. I, and I Trump think, doesn't seem to I have the capacity you, just, to get us yeah. into a huge disaster. Well, the, except in North Korea where I that I will I will yes, I will qualify my remarks. Nuclear by saying war would be a problem. If we have a nuclear war, yeah. yes. And and no, and look, I mean I'm I guess I guess my view is as is and remains that the big danger with Trump is a huge disastrous accident, an accident, you know, a nuclear war caused by just total foolishness rather than some grand strategic plan or a miss, huge mishandling, which we've had to some extent in Puerto Rico of a natural yes. disaster. That's a very Trumpian crisis where you have sort of incapacity at the center leading to disaster. Um, but I guess I, I was worried there'd be more of it. I was worried that having him in the White House would lead to, you know... That he'd be more capable of... No, actually, I I was worried that his incapacity would lead the rest of the world to get crazier, that we'd have much more Russian aggression or something. I I,
1: I will tell you my concerns, and then I want to ask you about some specific uh, issues. My concerns are two. One is that if the president of the United States day and night is telling people that their institutions are illegitimate, it has a corrosive effect. My second is if the president of the United States tells the world— that the United States is uh, not no longer going to play a leadership role, and if the president of the United States is selective on issues on, of human rights and is outraged about human rights in Iran, but fine with what's going on in the Philippines or Turkey, um, it, it sends a message to the world that is uh, confusing and diminishes yep. the country. And th- those are my those are my big concerns. But listen, we I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the whole immigration issue. I know that you have strong views on immigration and those uh, tend to flow in the direction of uh, Senator Cotton and others who are trying to to, uh, change immigration laws. Um, But uh, tell me what you uh, evaluate what happened with the president and not just (laughs) (laughs) and the, the word that he used. Do you think that that reflects an underlying kind of racist,
2: Santa man, Yeah, from the president? Yes. yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean I mean there are lots of different kinds of racism. Um, there's forms of racism that are more sort of ideological and then you know sort of that and that I would describe as sort of white supremacist in a kind of thoroughgoing way I don't think that's exactly Trump's racism I think he has the racism of you know somebody who just carries sort of basic biases about minority groups around in his head and that those come out all over the place because he doesn't have a he doesn't have a filter and this you know it, it's connected to public policy um but you know I mean he he started his career, his run for the mm-hmm. presidency as a birther. I, I don't, I don't really understand why I sort of take it for granted that he's, that he is either a bigot or so comfortable sort of playing the bigot as to make the distinction sort of imaginary. Um and
1: I probably disagree with you somewhat on, on the immigration issue. My, my view in part being colored by the fact that I'm the son of uh, an immigrant, but uh, who came here from one of those broken places that the president would have called a shithole back in the day, and other people did. Yes. Um, but do you think that he set the cause of uh, your argument back uh, and made it more difficult to, uh, to bring about change in the immigration system that you want to see by, uh, no pun intended, coloring it with his view?
2: Probably. Um, it's hard to say for certain only because you know, my my sense is that my own, my views are sort of persistently underrepresented among the people who are likely to make immigration policy. So at any given moment, any given immigration policy is going to be um, a little bit to the left of where I stand, no matter what. So it's hard, it's hard for me to tell exactly what effect Trump is having long term, because there are certain ways in which he's tugged the immigration debate in a more restrictionist, direction just by virtue of being elected president. Um, so you're trying to sort of if you're just doing pure political analysis without any moral judgment <laughs> you you have to balance the effects of him being president against um, the effects of him being a bigot. Uh, and I'm not I'm not always sure how that balances out. Uh, but I mean to me, you know, my, my views are a little different from Senator Cotton's. I think of my views as, as actually moderate in certain ways, but everyone thinks of their views as moderate <laughs> on some, in some ways. But I think there's a perfectly reasonable compromise to be had where the goal of immigration policy should be basically to maintain the current immigration rate um, and um, with a different skills mix. And that and and Cotton, I think you could start with the cotton proposal, which does that, but with a lower immigration yes, rate and say, okay, that's, them. that's, you know, one point And then, you know, you have where the Democrats are and you meet in the middle and that's my reasonable compromise. I think Trump has made it harder to get to that compromise. Um, probably, but I'm not 100% sure.
1: You know, back in uh, the 1890s, Henry Cabot Lodge made a speech on immigration, I think it was in, fr- in at the Senate, and he was pushing for a literacy test. He said it is found in the first place that the illiteracy test will bear most heavily upon the Italians, Russians, Poles, Hungarians, Greeks, and Asiatics, and very lightly or not at all upon English-speaking immigrants or Germans, Scandinavians, and French. And then he said the injury of unrestricted immigration to American wages and American standards of living is Sufficiently plain and is bad enough, but the danger which the immigration threatens, uh, this immigration threatens to the quality of our citizenship, is far worse. It's the same argument in certain ways that we've heard from some uh, folks on that side of the uh, the argument. Uh, which would, these were racist arguments, but they were aimed at uh, at Italians and Poles and Jews, and uh, who ended up being an important part of building. Uh, the American century.
2: Who did, uh, but who did after a a long period or during a long period of immigration restriction that coincided with a booming industrial economy, a sort of patriotism enhancing assimilation, enhancing world war um, and a society and a culture that was sort of, I think more assimilative in certain ways than, than ours is today. Um, I mean, we've we're we're sort of conducting. We're, we're basically at the point where the foreign-born share of the population is is on track to start exceeding its peak in the late 19th and early 20th century, and that puts stresses on the culture and the country, um, including the stresses that led to the election of Donald Trump. And mm-hmm. I think, you know. Th- liberals don't like this argument and i understand why they don't like it because it seems like you're sort of pandering to bigots and you can't give bigotry an inch but the fact is that good statesmanship has to take sort of nativist fear of change fear of difference into account when it's making policy yeah and you have to recognize that if you have this big i mean europe is going through this much more than we are but you can't just say well the bigots are wrong because foreigners will all assimilate and we need to you know, essentially stomp on the bigots the bigots are Americans and they're, they're part of the culture that you're trying to assimilate immigrants to and you want to maintain a rate of immigration and a diversity of immigrants that lets people feel like assimilation is happening and I think I, don't, no, I think, I, the, I, I think I, the American I, position is very different from the European position and I'm mm-hmm. much more pro-immigration right now In the American context. But I think, you know, we have a sort of unspoken consensus in Washington that immigration reform should always increase the immigration rate. And I think it's better for American politics if it's without necessarily liking them, if it's responsive to the forces that elect Trump and says, well, let's look for a compromise that, you know, without closing the door, without necessarily even cutting the immigration rate sort of stabilizes things and doesn't make people feel like you know we have an elite class that is sort of more more concerned about immigrants than about natives.
1: The irony of uh, there, there are a couple of ironies of some of the arguments we've heard. One is that uh, it turns out that the uh, immigrants who've come in from Africa are actually h- more highly educated yes. than the general public. The second is that most economists say because of the aging of our population, we actually need this inflow of immigrants uh, to renew our 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 workforce and so on,
2: we do, but that also creates issues because then you have you have racial and age, uh, you have racial no, division and uh, demographic absolutely. division. But the first point is certainly true. The irony is that right, the uh, the skills based policy that Trump officially supports would not lead to the you know, Norwegian balance of immigrants <laughs> that he desires.
1: So, so you know, I, I read a, a really interesting column you wrote uh, analyzing data and talking about how it's really women who are driving the resistance to Trump uh, electorally. Um, but in it, you noted something that uh, is, uh, I think, that i that I wanted to talk about, which is that his coalition uh, depends on working class wise evangelicals and older white men. you could also add rural yes. uh, voters small town voters and i you know I was over in Britain doing some uh, work uh related to brexit uh, some uh, panels from the university and what what was so striking as I studied the vote on brexit was just how similar the uh, yeah. Pro Brexit vote was to the pro Trump vote, and as you cross West, across uh, Europe, you see these populist movements spring up, and they're generally older, uh, white, uh, rural voters. So this is not an American phenomenon. This is a, a global phenomenon, and it has to do with all the advanced economies.
2: Yes, there's there's an agglomeration of success basically in certain cities and certain regions and a growing division between those regions and unsuccessful regions in the hinterland but not even necessarily in the hinterland i mean detroit and michigan were not the hinterland right. <laughs> 50 years ago we think of them that way only because they've been the rust belt's been in decline for so long but yes absolutely you you see this you know it's a sort of there's a sense that that the the capital um, areas. in You know, in England, it's basically the whole area around London and all its tentacles have done incredibly well, and the rest of the country and the rest of the economy have not. And, and
1: a sense of cultural uh, disdain. Yes,
2: uh, yes, a sense of cultural disdain and a sense of alienation from this kind of, you know, this metropolitan world that has a sort of immigrant working class and a pluralistic, diverse, but still heavily white, upper class and no white middle class anymore. And you see this, you know, in New York City, right? I mean, New York City is a city that is a city for the rich and immigrants and nobody else. Um, And that inevitably creates a sense of sort of alienation. And I mean, France France is the same way. There are some differences, some variations where in some European countries, the far right has more support among the young. There's more support for populists in France. uh, Marine Le Pen had more support among the young. Um, than uh, Brexit did, I believe, in England. So so there is some generational variation. But the basic sort of urban-rural, but also more sort of rust belt versus creative class divide is persistent and chronic, and it's a very hard problem to know exactly what to do about. I don't think either political coalition has a clear idea.
1: Yeah, and technology, automation, globalization, these are forces that are not going to be Reversed, So the implications of those for this, I think, further complicate.
2: Uh, it does, although globalization can go in reverse sometimes. Um, it doesn't mean it's necessarily a good thing. But, uh, you but know, automation the, will not. Automation will not.
1: Um, let, let me uh, just, uh, final word. Yeah. Uh, what is this Trump epic going to do uh, to and for? or it could be two or for uh, conservatism, as you conceive of conservatism?
2: That's a good question. I, I mean, I, th- I increasingly think it could leave the Republican Party in a kind of uh, weirdly sort of right where it started that Republicans can convince themselves when all this is over that, you know, the Trump era, wow, that was a weird, crazy trip. <laughs> but, you know, we had some power, we did some things with it, then we lost power, and now we should just keep on doing the same old thing. So I'm I'm increasingly tempted to think that, um, you know, in the short term – the Republican Party is not going to learn clear what I think are clear lessons from Trump, and won't sort of adapt in the way I think it adapts. And will sort of essentially keep doing the same things over and over again, as long as it can hold a certain amount of power doing them among intellectuals, though, I think it's much more wide open, Um, especially among people younger than myself. I think there's a lot of disillusionment with existing modes of thinking that are sending, and this is true on the left, too. I think this is a bipartisan phenomenon that there's a lot more skepticism about the overarching system. Um, There's more sort of, you know, young, we were talking about Catholicism earlier, young Catholics of my acquaintance are more likely to be traditionalists, just as young people on the left are more likely to be flirting with Marxism. There's sort of a a renewed interest in the extremes that, and I have no idea how this will bear fruit. It's sort of intersecting with a political system that feels to me very sclerotic and resistant to change. But that's... That's sort of the interesting thing. I feel like intellectual life, especially among the younger groups, is opening up in new, in different ways, and new arguments are happening. But at the center, the lesson of Trump so far is that the system sort of defends itself, and things can go on in the same patterns even when you think your something has happened that should lead to incredibly dramatic change.
1: Ross Stafford, it is great to have you here. It's been a at lot the of university fun, and right here. And uh, we will be reading with
2: interest. (laughs) I'll keep writing them.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.